Hello, I'm Michael Woods, Chief Scientist at the Asian Turfgrass Center. This is the ATC Double Cut. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about one or two, I think maybe even three recent blog posts from the ATC website. I've been writing all kinds of things about all kinds of topics that are interesting to me. And in this show, I try to explain why I wrote it, some of the behind the scenes information about what prompted me to write about that particular topic and why, especially why I think it's something that's worth your time to read it and why you should know about these things. The first one that I'm going to talk about is about Dollar Spot. And this, uh, this is a photo that I took on a trip. I was in Southern Europe uh, about a month ago uh shortly before i wrote this post and i came across a kaikuyu grass fairway that also had some bank grass and poa annua in it and there was a lot of dollar spot there was really a lot of dollar spot and there's a lot of dollar spot i'm often interested in what the smith kearns model which is a predictive model for dollar spot outbreaks i I wonder what that model was predicting for uh, how much, how, how, how high the risk would be for dollar spot. And in, um, in that post, which I called checking dollar spot with model probability, I retroactively looked at the model probability of dollar spot for that location. Now this is the Smith Kearns model. I look, so I looked up the temperature and the relative humidity for this location in Southern Europe, and I'd taken that photo on the 5th of June. And in this chart, which is the Smith-Kearns model probability by temperature and humidity, I'm showing this chart now, that was a relatively low probability of a dollar spot epidemic it was less than 20 percent except for a, a little uh, a little peak above it in late march and another little peak right in mid-may but then the the time that i took that image the time that i walked on that fairway and saw all of that dollar spot on the poa annua and bank grass portion of the fairway the Smith Kearns dollar spot model was up around 35%. And generally, it's considered that a outbreak may occur. There would be a high risk of an outbreak on susceptible cultivars. And I think Poa annua can always be considered a susceptible cultivar for dollar spot. There would be a high risk, a high probability of a dollar spot epidemic when the Smith-Kearns model, which is calculated based on temperature and humidity, when that value is above 20%, when the, the output of the Smith-Kearns model is greater than 20%. And it had gone above 20% at this location in late May, and then on, so May 30th, May 31st, June 1st, June 2nd, June 3rd, June 4th, June 5th, 
And sure enough, when I was there, it was right in the middle of a dollar spot epidemic on the Poa Annua and creeping bent grass in the fairway. So I did that retroactively because I am interested in this. I wrote in the blog post, I said, when I see an outbreak of dollar spot like this, I make a note to check the Smith-Kearns probability model to see what the numbers are. I'm just checking this out of curiosity, but if I were a turfgrass manager, I'd be checking forecasts and historical data with an eye to minimizing the intensity of any disease outbreaks. I also mentioned that Pace Turf makes a climate appraisal for all of the subscribers with these beautiful spark line type charts that show for the subscribers location their Smith Kearns dollar spot outbreak uh, or their Smith Kearns uh, model probability. It, this is not this is not the actual dollar spot outbreak. It's the probability of a dollar spot outbreak based on the weather. This is shown for Pace Turf subscribers in a series of five charts for the past five years. So this is 2022. And if we look this up for a subscriber, we can see it's got a 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021 uh, line. It's like a, a spark line, which is something that Edward Tufte mentioned in his books about a easy way to see how there's a trend over time. And to me, this kind of reminds me of a spark line, but it's more than a spark line because it also includes the sum of days at which the probability risk was above 20%. As you may have heard, I hope hope you've heard, I've recently acquired Pace Turf, and I am going to be sharing a lot more information about some of the many things, uh, the many useful decision support tools that you can obtain from Pace Turf in upcoming blog posts on the ATC website. Of course, as I continue sharing information also on the Pace Turf website and in all of the various podcasts and videos and so on in which I try to share with you as much useful turfgrass information as possible. It's really useful if you're in any part of the world in which a dollar spot can occur. And there are some places where the risk will be very low and basically dollar spot doesn't exist. Dollar spot won't really, um, dollar spot may exist, but the symptoms won't be shown one will will not have an outbreak of that disease in some locations in other places one will and it varies through the year what the risk is it's useful to know what that is as a decision support tool about how one may make changes in managing the grass in in order to keep the keep the damage from the outbreak uh, within a reasonable range for one's facility. I'm going to move right on to another post. And this one is about survey results. I've talked about this one before. I put this in the last MLSN newsletter. And this post, survey results, 
the title is survey results, fertilizer recommendations as ratios, percentages, or neither. A reminder, I will put a direct link to all these posts that I'm talking about today. All of these blog posts will be in the show notes, in the description, in the supplemental information that you can get, whether you're watching this as a video, in which I think it's typically called the video description, or if you're listening to this as as a podcast, in which case I think those are typically called the show notes. Either way, if you go to the description or the show notes, you can get a direct link, a direct link to all of these blog posts that I'm talking about today. And you can read them and look at the charts yourself, read uh, and see the other information that I've linked to. Now, this one I think is really important. And I think I might need to explain it just a little bit more. Of course, the people that get the MLSN newsletter, which by the way, I'll put a link for how you can subscribe to that uh, in the description and in the show notes also. Um, I asked the question, which of these makes the most sense to you? And it's a way of making fertilizer recommendations. I said, does it make the most sense to you to use ratios, for example, to, pl- to apply NPK in an 8 to 1 to 4 ratio? 50% of the respondents chose that, 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 that those ratios makes the most sense to them. And this is the way that I have been doing it recently. I typically am going to make fertilizer recommendations as ratios. And I talked about this in a episode a month or so ago with special guest Andrew McDaniel. And in that, he asked me the question bluntly, why am I doing that? Why am I, why am I recommending ratios instead of amounts? And I said, because I don't know how much nitrogen someone is going to apply. And the amount of phosphorus and potassium that the grass uses will be related to how much the grass grows. And if somebody applies 20 grams of nitrogen per square meter, which would be four pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet, I would expect the grass could potentially grow about twice as fast as it would if that site received 10 grams of nitrogen per square meter or two pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet in one year. If I recommend the phosphorus and the potassium as a ratio in relation to nitrogen, then it doesn't matter if someone applies 10 grams, 20 grams, or 30 grams of nitrogen to create the desired playing conditions that they need for that year at that facility. If I've made the recommendation as a ratio, I can be confident that they'll be applying enough phosphorus and potassium. But if I just pick a single number and say, you should apply, for example, three grams of phosphorus per square meter, that may be exactly enough given the soil test result and given the expected plant use of phosphorus, that may be the exact that may be a perfect recommendation if they happen to be applying 
my estimate of, let's say, an optimum nitrogen rate of 12 grams of nitrogen per square meter at that site, which would be 2.4 pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet. But they may apply 15 grams or 20 grams or 22 grams or 8 grams. If they apply less, that amount of phosphorus would be an over-recommendation. And if they apply more nitrogen, that amount of that single number, that three grams of phosphorus that I've recommended, that would be insufficient. And that's why I've more recently been recommending ratios. And it makes a lot of sense to me. And I was glad that for 50% of the people answering the survey, it, that makes sense to them also. 19.6% responded that their preferred method or what makes the most sense to them would be to make these recommendations as percentages. For example, to apply phosphorus at 12.5% the nitrogen rate and potassium at 50% of the nitrogen rate. So if we combine those two, that brings us up to about 70%. 50% like ratios, 20% like percentages, 6.5% will round that up to 7% answered neither. This doesn't make complete sense to me right now. So I've got a little bit more explaining to do. And I think uh, if we look at the people who are getting the MLSN newsletter, that's probably a set of turfgrass managers who are quite keen to understand the details and the intricacies of fertilizer recommendations. So probably if we would go out to the general public and look at the people that are not getting the MLSN newsletter and look at every turfgrass manager, that number may be a little bit higher about um, those who, who would say this doesn't make complete sense to me right now. So I definitely want to explain this a bit more so that hopefully uh, this will make sense to everyone. And I also gave an option of both. I'd rather you include ratios and percentages. 23.9%, I'll round that up to 24%. 24% would rather have both. So I was pleased that overall, we've got more than 90% of the respondents are happy to have ratios, percentages, or both. And I've generally been doing ratios. For some people, when I'm making a report, I explain it as a percentage. And I think what I'm going to do going forward is explain this a little bit in the, what I would call the appendix of the soil test reports when I make these recommendations. So that I will generally use ratios, but I'll explain it a little bit more and explain how to convert from ratios to percentages. Now, I want to be, or I want to remind people that I'm not talking about the analysis on a fertilizer bag. I'm not talking about the nutrient analysis, which might be on a fertilizer bag. It would be 24312, for example. Now, 24312 happens to have an 8 to 1 to 4 ratio, but the 24312 is the fertilizer analysis. When I'm saying to apply 
nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in an 814 ratio, a meaning that you would find fertilizers or mix your own products, the types of products that you like to use, so that over time you end up applying nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in an something like an 8 to 1 to 4 ratio, if that's the recommendation that I'm making. I'm definitely not saying choose an 814 fertilizer. Um, so I, there's been a little bit of confusion between fertilizer analysis and ratios. To me, it's quite distinct that a ratio is a ratio and a fertilizer uh, bag analysis is something else. And the same thing with percentages. Um, if I'm saying apply MPK in an 814 ratio, that means that phosphorus is one-eighth of the nitrogen, which is 12.5%. And if potassium is four and nitrogen is eight, then that means potassium is at 50% of the nitrogen rate. So I'm just, to me, the ratios and the percentages are quite interchangeable. I find it a little bit simpler to just state the ratio and let people work out the percentages on their own. But going forward, I'll try to explain this a little bit better on the reports. So that's something that I, I would share those results and I did. And I'm also interested to hear back from you if this still doesn't make sense about why I, why I've more recently been making recommendations in this way. So it's based on fertilizer recommendations from MLSN. That is uh, a soil test interpretation method. I've mentioned before that the way to use this is not to look at whether the soil test result is above or below MLSN and using that as a decision on whether to apply fertilizer or not. Because grass is alive, and I certainly hope your grass is alive. And when it's alive, it is using nutrients. The nutrients that are in the soil today are hopefully going to be a little bit lower tomorrow because the grass roots are taking up some of those nutrients. So if we have a minimum guideline of 37 parts per million for potassium, for example, and if you test at 50 parts per million, depending on how fast your grass is growing, and that's why the nitrogen part of this ratio is important because depending on how much nitrogen you supply, that is going to be uh, have an effect on how fast the grass use how fast the grass grows and consequently on how fast it's using potassium from the soil. So if we um, if we have that level of potassium in the soil, that's only going to be enough with a typical nitrogen rate, typical turf. That may be enough potassium to last six weeks or so. And after six weeks, the soil might be at 35 parts per million, assuming you have not applied any potassium. So what I do to make the fertilizer recommendations, and I've written about this in various places, I recommend as a starting point, if you're curious about this, look for the MLSN cheat sheet. And the MLSN cheat sheet has all the equations, all the ways to get these values, and an explanation in only two pages, two, if I may say so, information-packed pages, 
uh, that MLSN cheat sheet, which I'll put a direct link to in the description, you can check that out and you can see how to calculate this to find the amount of a nutrient necessary to apply to stay at or above the MLSN guideline. I find it it's even easier because I don't know how much nitrogen people will supply just to recommend a ratio. So I'm, this is something that I'm working on. I talked with Doug Soldat about this a little bit uh, last week. And I think uh, it's something that I'm going to try to be more clear about in the next version of MLSN when we update it, hopefully later this year. I will try to explain this a little bit more clearly. But for now, I just wanted to see what makes sense to you. So thanks everyone for uh, helping out with that survey for those who answered. And I'm glad that the way that I'm recommending now, it's making sense or it, it can work somehow for about 90%, a little over 90% of the people who answered the survey. I'm going to talk about one more post that I've made. As I've, as I mentioned in the last episode, I've been doing all kinds of blog posts. <laughs> I've been writing about all kinds of topics. We're going to change subjects now, go on to the next topic, which is low light locations for warm season grasses. This is photosynthetically active radiation, daily light integral, PAR. Photosynthetically active radiation is abbreviated as PAR or PAR. And I think that this is a fascinating topic because there's a lot of places in the world that have similar temperatures. But if we compare the amount of light that's available to the grass, the amount of PAR in these different locations, it can vary tremendously. And I've been looking at this because... It has to do, well, it has a big effect on grass selection, which grasses are suitable to grow, which grasses can grow, and which grasses do grow and perform well in a certain area, and which grasses don't perform so well in a certain area. I used it as an example, I showed wild Bermuda grass growing around the bunker on the 18th green at Pebble Beach Golf Links, where we can see that Bermuda grass and Manila grass, Zoysia matrella, those are both warm season grasses. But in a place like Pebble Beach, one can find plenty of wild Bermuda grass and no Manila grass. This has to do to some extent with the amount of light that's available. There is plenty of light available for the Bermuda grass to grow. I think this also has to do with the amount of soil moisture, but generally one will find manila grass growing in places that are a lot cloudier than that. They also happen to be a lot warmer than that and generally have a lot more soil moisture. But if we isolate, if we isolate the two factors, which is what this blog post is about, I can make some interesting rankings of locations in the world in terms of the intensity of the low light stress the for specifically for warm season grasses so the first chart that i did or the first chart that's shown in this post 
I called climate induced shade stress for C4 grass. C4 grass means warm season grass. And I looked at the fraction of the warm days with a daily light integral less than 30 moles per meter squared per day. That would be about 50% sunshine. Warm days I called as days that are above 24 degrees Celsius average temperature. That's going to be something about 75 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe 75, 77 degrees Fahrenheit. So for days that are warm in a year, and actually I, I calculated this over a three-year average. I calculated it for weather data, for temperature data from 2018, 2019, and 2020 for a number of global locations. For warm days, and we're talking now about a thousand days that we're looking at, and we're looking at of those a thousand and some days over the three years, how many of those warm days had a DLI, a a daily light integral, which is the measure of photosynthetically active radiation, the light that the grass can use for photosynthesis, How, what fraction of those days were less than 30 moles per meter squared per day? That 30 moles per meter squared per day number would be about 50% shade. On a sunny summer day with no clouds, you can expect in most parts of the world that the daily light integral on a no cloud summer day is going to be about 60 60 moles of photons photo photons that are in the wavelengths that are photosynthetically active 30 moles of photons per square meter per day or sorry 60 so 60 would be full sun, no clouds. And then 30 would be half of that. Places like Palm Desert, California, Cairo, Egypt, Phoenix, Arizona, Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, Sydney, Australia, Brisbane, Australia, Watkinsville, Georgia, Bali, Holly Springs, Mississippi, those locations all are relatively sunny because on this chart, they are less than, well, let me see how to explain it. 90% or more of the warm days have more than 50% sunshine. Okay. They, they don't, they don't deal with a lot of shade, a lot of cloud cover during the times of the year when the temperatures are warm. And I look at the times when the temperatures are warm because I think that's when it's most important for warm season grasses for us to consider what the shade effect would be on warm season grasses. I don't really care what the shade effect is when the grass is not growing, but when the grass has the potential to grow because it's a warm day, that's when I think the effect of shade is most severe. We can look at the other end of the scale and find places like Fukuoka in Japan, Hanoi in Vietnam, Hong Kong, 
Kolkata in eastern India, Tokyo, Japan, all of those locations on the warm days, on the days in the year when the temperatures are suitable for rapid, healthy, warm season grass growth. On those days, they have from 30 to 40% of the days have less than 50% sunshine, more than 50% shade. And that shade is not coming from trees. We're talking here not about shade from trees. We're talking about atmospheric shade, the shade that happens because the heavy cloud cover on those hot days blocks the photosynthetically active radiation. And if you look at the types of grasses that grow well, that perform well in places like Fukuoka and Hanoi and Kolkata and Hong Kong and Tokyo, you'll find a lot of zoysia grass. Now, you can also grow Bermuda grass in those locations, and Bermuda grass is grown in those locations, and it can perform well. You can find some seashore paspalum in a few of those locations. It can also grow well. But zoysia is really strong in those locations. So my idea with making this type of analysis and then ranking the cities like this or plotting them all on the same chart and trying to show how they vary is to see which places might be relatively easier or, or relatively more suitable for a certain type of warm season grass and which areas might be more suitable for another type of warm season grass. Another chart that I showed is a little bit more, well, I guess both of these are a little bit complex, but I made it complex because if we study it, I think it can be quite insightful. But maybe these charts are ones that it may take a couple minutes of looking at the cities appreciating where in the world they're located and looking at exactly what is shown on the X and Y axes to find, um, well, to, I guess, to grasp the take-home message. The next chart that I showed was the annual DLI. So now I didn't look only at the warm days. I looked at the entire year. And then I also looked at how much DLI is missing. Remember, DLI is the photos is the total photosynthetically active radiation summed on a daily basis. So I looked on the the mean annual DLI on the y-axis, meaning for all these locations in the world, what is the average annual daily light integral? Keeping in mind that the summer, Sunny day, no cloud DLI is going to be about 60, but it's not always summer. The places that finished highest on this are Phoenix, Palm Desert, Honolulu, Dubai, Guam, Cairo, Mauritius, Bali. All of those locations have an average annual DLI on every day in the year of more than 40, between 40 to 45. Now, the reason why they are not higher, why they're not at 60 
on average, because a place like Phoenix is quite sunny and doesn't have a lot of cloudy days. But Phoenix is also not that close to the equator. So in the wintertime, a sunny day in the winter doesn't have a DLI of 60. A, a sunny day in the winter has a DLI of something like, I don't know, 45. I, don't, I would have to look it up, but it, it's going to be lower than 60 because the sun is quite far away from Phoenix. It's in the south, and it's not directly overhead. And the amount of photosynthetically active radiation, the amount of total radiation that reaches the ground in Phoenix during the winter is less, even on a perfectly clear day. And that's the way it is in Phoenix, Honolulu, Guam, Dubai. Bali's pretty close to the equator, but that's where the effect of clouds come in. And then I also showed the missing DLI. I, I looked at what the actual DLI is, and I compared it to what it would be if every day was a sunny day. So we could look at which areas in the world had the most missing DLI. And some of these same places showed up as on the previous chart. Hanoi, Vietnam is missing on average about 23 moles per meter squared per day based on clouds. Hong Kong is missing about 21. Fukuoka is missing about 18. Tokyo is missing about 17. So those finish the lowest. So on, on this chart, they finish the lowest both on the mean annual daily light integral, but also they're missing the most. Missing is shown on the x-axis, and these locations, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Fukuoka, and Hanoi, are missing around 20 moles per meter squared per day all through the year. So on, on average, that's what they're missing. Locations like Phoenix and Palm Desert are missing less than five. And that means they're very sunny. Places like Cairo, Honolulu, and Dubai, they're missing between five to 10 moles of photons of photosynthetically active radiation per square meter per day on average, all through the year. So you've got places like Tokyo, Fukuoka, Hong Kong, and Hanoi are missing more than twice as much. In fact, compared to Phoenix and Palm Desert, Phoenix in Arizona, Palm Desert is in the Coachella Valley of Southern California. Phoenix and Palm Desert, if you we look at compare that to Hong Kong, Hong Kong is missing more than four times as much photosynthetically active radiation. And it's, why is it missing? It's missing because of differences in cloud cover. So that chart's a little bit, a little bit tricky, but that's what it means. I hope that explanation makes a little bit of sense. And I was using this as like these two charts as a way of trying to come up with a way to calculate for any way, for anywhere in the world, what the photosynthetically active radiation stress may be, what the shade stress may be simply based on weather. And I think this seems to separate places that are sunny, like Phoenix, and, it, and places that are really cloudy and missing a lot of photosynthetically active radiation, like Hanoi, Vietnam, pretty well. You would notice if you look at these charts that some of the 
locations that are missing the most light are in East and Southeast Asia, which is something I've been talking about for a long time, that in this part of the world, in East and Southeast Asia, when it is warm, when the temperatures are high and quite suitable for warm season grass to grow well, that in this part of the world, those are also times of the year when it tends to be quite cloudy. And that cloud cover, especially when it's combined with shade from trees, can really put some severe stress, some severe shade stress onto warm season turf. Those are some charts and some rankings that I hope to do more with. I want to rank everywhere in the world, basically, and I haven't quite figured out how to select the locations. I've had the idea of choosing the areas with the largest populations, um, which is one way to do it. You know, pick something like the the uh, 500 largest population centers or, or something like that in the world, the 500 largest metropolitan areas in the world, and looking up the weather data for all those locations and then do the ranking. But the problem is that might miss some very interesting places that uh, don't happen to have such a high population. And then one can also do maps of the entire world, but that has the problem of not being very high resolution. Because if you make a global map at high resolution, um, uh, you make something that is a massive file size and a massive data processing load, and it's not really feasible to do that for this type of fun project. And then I have the idea to make it as a, uh, a shiny app, kind of like the global DLI app, where I didn't calculate it for everywhere in the world. I just made an interface, and I'll put a link to that also, where you can um, find that app if you're interested in looking at what the DLI is at your location. And that's something that I may do for these type of charts also to look at um, some different ways of looking at shade intensity for different areas in the world. I think it's quite useful when we consider which grasses may perform well because everybody knows that Bermuda grass has a very high light requirement. Zoysia has a lower light requirement for other warm season grasses like seashore paspalum. There, I think it needs more light than zoysia, less light than Bermuda grass. And you get your stenotaphrum, your St. Augustine grass, as Americans call it, or buffalo grasses. Australians call it. That one is going to be somewhere around zoysia or even uh, tolerant of even more shade. And you get your tropical carpet grass and variations of tropical carpet grass that are around uh, seashore pass. Sorry, around Cenotaphrum, uh, St. Augustine grass type of shade tolerance levels. So that's an interesting project. And I like making charts and trying to show the differences between locations. So I did that in that post. So we've talked in this episode about Dollar Spot, 
the Smith Kearns probability model, nutrient recommendations as ratios, shade. We talked about all kinds of varying topics, and that's the type of information that you can find on the ATC website, in the blog. You can get all this information as a newsletter, or you can just follow me on Twitter to get updates about this. On Twitter, I'm at Asian Turfgrass. You can also follow along on YouTube. Be sure to click the bell when you follow me on YouTube so that you can get notifications when I have new information like this, new episodes of this show and other videos that I make. And if you like listening to this as a podcast, which I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people do listen to this as a podcast, then be sure to follow along there so you can be notified of new episodes when I post them. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this wide range of turfgrass topics. Uh, and I have a lot more on what will be, I assure you, a, a continued wide range of uh, turfgrass topics coming up. For ATC from Yantikau, Thailand, I am Micah Woods. <laughs>